You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. In this episode, Future Net Zero founder Sumit Bose speaks with Louise Kingham, Chief Executive of the Energy Institute, as they discuss how the energy sector has been responding to coronavirus and how the sector has shown resilience in the face of the crisis. Louise, really nice to see you in unusual circumstances. Good to see you too. <laughs> um, first of all, how are you? How are your family? Everyone all right? Yeah, they're fine, thank you. Yeah, very good, Summit. How about you? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, um, obviously the, the, we're now, what, two and a bit weeks into this lockdown. Can I just take you back to when you felt this was coming or whether you did it just when the government said to do it? You had an inkling, because I know you have lots of international members. Go back to when you started to think this is a little bit more serious than we had thought, I think, all of us. And and what you were thinking in your mind for for preparing for something like this. Um, I I guess we came to it sort of earlier than some, simply because each February we organise a big event uh, called International Petroleum Week, where we bring people together from the oil and gas industry around the world. So we can have people, anything from 30 to 50 countries, rocking up for that for uh, the inside of a week in London. And then they do a whole bunch of other things while they're here. Uh, and the, obviously, the, we have a big Asia program as a, as a part of that. And we started to see companies saying, sorry, we can't send people, uh, travel bans were coming. And at that, at that point, the spread of the virus was quite small. It was mm-hmm. obviously, it was restricted to a very small number of countries. And, and principally, it was China that was, was, was feeling it at that stage. And it, and it certainly wasn't u- u- particularly European bound at that point. Um, so that's when we sort of had to sit back and say, right, so is it the right thing to do to keep going, which was the government advice, just business as usual, carry on. Uh, or actually, do we do we do things slightly differently? So we introduced extra hygiene measures and signage and more messaging to participants mm-hmm. about the things that we were doing to keep them safe uh, and, and look after their well-being. And we obviously had a scaled down programme and a slightly reduced participant list, but we still had lots and lots of people coming in to talk about net zero strategies and how the oil and gas industry could reposition itself to contribute. And we, we had great debate um but it was it yes it, it was a slightly different different mood and a different feel to it and then obviously things escalated that was the that was late february yeah so um bernard did the big dinner event for us talking about bp's ambitions beyond the company ones around net zero and how they were going to contribute uh to the rest of society and the things that they wanted to try and do and that was that was probably our last event actually because Straight after, because that was about the 27th, I think, 26, 27th. Yeah, yeah, right at the end of February. Um, We still had a couple of weeks. Did you start to make some changes that Monday afterwards in the office? Did you start to think, hang on a second, this could be coming? Yeah, we started we started watching quite carefully what the, the companies were doing because they were taking action ahead of the government advice in the energy sector. So obviously we have a number of, of leading energy companies that drive, for example, all of our HSE work that we do, all the industry good practice. And so I was talking to the UK CEOs about what they were planning to do. Uh, and, and then obviously if the situation escalated, what their response was likely to be as employers because that has a direct effect on the things that we do as a, as a not-for-profit and as a charitable organisation that relies on volunteer effort from these companies 
for us to work in partnership to do the stuff we do. Um, and so when they started to say, actually, you know, the travel bans are going further and wider and deeper, we're telling people not to go to events now and mass gatherings, you know, all those sorts of pieces of really sensible advice, which were coming out just that bit ahead of the UK government advice, yeah. um, was telling us, actually, we needed to start battening down the hatches and prepare for things to look quite different. So we cancelled a couple of events that we had uh, looming uh in in the program and moved those to later in the year and we started to prepare ourselves for working quite differently in in, in exceptional circumstances and i think i had a leadership team then the following week uh and the day after we then put everyone largely for a very small number on home working was that, was that before the actual official lockdown when you did you made that decision that just before yeah 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 just before we could see we could see that it was coming yeah how big a Talk us through, for people who don't know about the work of the Energy Institute, talk about, you know, what sort of base you have in London here where it's headquarters and what you had to do. I mean, did you have to get people laptops? Did you have to move everyone? Did you have to have, you know, is there secure sort of comms you need for certain communications? What, what did you have to do? But fortunately, we've, we, the head office, as you rightly say, is based in, in central London. And then we've got regional offices and people working uh, remotely already. So, so we were very fortunate in that our IT systems, uh, our ability to access sort of central storage of information and data and, and central systems is either sort of cloud based or it's through secure channels, through, through VPNs and, and secure networks. So we were really lucky. Um, we were in the midst of changing phone systems and video conferencing, which was planned activity uh, when the rest of it wasn't but that so that caught us a little bit by surprise but nevertheless my IT manager did an amazing job and, and sorted that out uh, and got us up and running transferred over really quickly but other other remote IT systems were already there so it was really about supporting the people that weren't used to remote working mm -hmm. on a periodic basis because we were all doing it largely on a, on a periodic basis it was about helping them to adjust and so I think we only had a couple of laptops that we had to provide for the people who were usually based in the office. Everybody else was already kitted up and good to go. Um, so then it was just about making some choices about the video conferencing systems and other things we were going to use to communicate with each other. And certainly the amount of communications has gone up enormously, both internally. So I do a daily update at the end of every day to the whole team that goes worldwide. In London and uh, in the UK, there's about a uh, uh, shy of a hundred people, and then I've got people in Hong Kong, in Singapore, um, in West Africa, and the Middle East. So, you know, lots of different time zones. Uh, people are in, at different stages when the government advice was coming out in those countries as to yeah. what the situation was for them, uh, and obviously different experiences. So now my my folks in uh, Southeast Asia feeling a little bit more no i wouldn't say confident but like they might be seeing some light uh, yeah. out the other side uh, whereas obviously all of us in uh, in europe are, are feeling something quite different at the moment so the <laughs> middle east went on lockdown really fast <clears throat> yeah you know, they they and the, the schools closed quickly and you know, it's actually society went down on lockdown re really really quickly in that part of the world um, I want to talk about the energy people around the world because that's quite an important thing that we should discuss. But just before that, um, how are you? I mean, you, you say you've got about 100 staff that are there generally in London. One of the things about being the boss is that you're, you're the boss of a company or an organization, but you're also boss of people. And it is a big thing to shift with kids at home, to try and work from home. Some people may live on their own. There's lots of things that come into it. 
what have you done or how have you found the challenge of staff welfare? Um, it's something that's really important to me ordinarily anyway, always has been. I am a people person. That that bit of my job is, is, is the fun bit, actually. It's the piece I like to do, whether that's with the staff team or whether that's with the 2000 volunteers that work with those 100 staff to do all the things the Energy Institute does. So so actually their well-being is is really important and um, the engagement between the staff is good. Uh, and the engagement between the staff and the leadership team is really good. It's a very open culture. People are able to speak up. Uh, and so what's happened, interestingly, because that was already in place, mm -hmm. you know, they've chosen, staff team chose the values of the organisation. So it's not me giving out top-down diktats about things. It bubbles up and across the organisation from all, all quarters. So all of that in place already means that actually for us as a company, culturally, it's probably quite a simple adjustment relative to what some others might be feeling. Yeah. Um, and I did a, I did a, a broadcast on the all-team meeting, and, I, and one of the things I said was, you know, last week I had a really iffy week. I yeah. felt really unsettled, uh, yeah. couldn't quite work out why, didn't really have time to stop and think about it, but it was really odd and unsettling. And I just said to them, you know, you will feel like that. It, you will go up and down. This is hugely stressful, even if you don't normally register your own levels of stress, which I don't particularly, but um, I did spot that I was out of sorts. And I said, we have an employee assistance program. Uh, we check in with everyone. We said, if you live alone, can you just let your team leaders know that you live alone? And we will have systems for checking up on you and checking in with you just to make sure you're safe yes. on the days that you're meant to be at work so that we just can keep track because being disconnected physically makes all of that. You've got to make more effort to make that stuff happen. Yeah, absolutely. You can't just pop next door to have a coffee or chat to someone in, in the office and, and, you know, say, look, I'm feeling a bit down or whatever. Absolutely. And, and you know, I'm encouraging. So by me being honest about me not feeling so great for a few days uh, and then I either get some staff messages after the daily updates gone out from people saying that was great that you felt comfortable to say that. Actually, I wasn't feeling so good yesterday, but I'm having a better day today. And, you know, I'm asking them to make sure that they can try and use some time out. If they don't want to take all their annual leave, I get that. Some people want to take the break. Other people actually want the work because that's their bit of normal. <laughs> that's the one thing they yeah. hold on to. That's so it's, it's really important that you don't try and, as a leader to sort of in, institute these blanket rules across a, a group of people. Uh, who are struggling to adjust and, and expect that everybody wants or needs the same things because they don't. And yeah. what that does by having yeah. that by having that culture is that it means that they feel confident to say what they would like and what yeah. they do need. And, and then we can be effective by responding. Now, I don't take this wrong way, but you've been CEO for quite a while. So. I have. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever... A, had you ever thought of something like this? We probably planned, we live in London, we've had terrible incidents like terror attacks and things like that. You think about power cuts, you think about things that could happen. But did you ever imagine something like that, A? And B, how has it been for you, this challenge? Um, do you ever imagine it, it to an extent? I would say, you know, we have a risk register, as many organisations do, right, which we keep under constant review. Wow. Uh, and we're sort of using it and keeping it alive, mitigating the, the, the risks across all sorts of activities. And we had pandemic risk on the register wow okay um and and i was on the edge of, of sort of challenging ourselves in the leadership team as to whether or not it really needed to stay there so yeah. that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so for all the things we did see, we didn't see that one. Uh, and one of the, but, but what, where we got that wrong by having it on the risk register, given this experience, is that we were thinking about it in terms of key people becoming sick and not being able to yeah. deliver services. And we had no um, register for how this would affect the people we're trying to support. It was really focused around our own people and the business resilience. Yeah, yeah so it was all the business business continuity stuff. It wasn't about how on earth it would impact on our customers, our stakeholders, you know, our volunteer community, all the people that are really important to us much more widely than the staff team. So that was quite a useful learning. So I'll be editing that next time I go back to it. <laughs> and what about for you as a person, as a CEO? Um, <clears throat> it's funny, I was talking to another CEO uh, the, the, the other day um, uh, because we had to collide in some crisis conversation that we were having. And we were saying that it's like running two organisations. You've got your COVID-19 business, which is in crisis mode, uh, and you suddenly become even more of an expert to all things in responding uh, yeah. as quickly as you can to the needs of others as they come in looking for guidance or help. And then you've got your organization as usual in effect you know they unpleasantly collide in all sorts of ways so I've never known uh, I've never known anything like it I guess is the is the honest answer um, and as you say I've been doing it for quite a while <laughs> I suppose the other thing is when you know people think about you look at leaders but you are learning right now every day on this one as well you know I speak to CEOs like you do regularly and I've been doing these interviews and nearly all of them are going I just got to get my head around what's happening first of all before I can even interpret. Yeah, 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 and and that's not just how to use Zoom or Microsoft Teams or you know any of the other things we've you know we are all going to be digital masters by the time we come through yeah, the other absolutely. side. There's there's, there's no, an no, outside big Absolutely. Uh, but no, that's right. And I but I also think that a good leader is one that's always prepared to learn and keep learning. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. that, that they're, they're the best kind of people to lead anything, I think. Um, so, you know, if you think you've, you've mastered it all, well, boy, this situation should be teaching people otherwise. Big time. Let's talk mm. about the people. So um, Energy Institute is, could you remind me how many, how many countries do you have members in? Over 100 countries. Okay. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so they're all around the world. And, you know, as you said, you talked about Africa, uh, Asia, Middle East. Uh, what's, what's the message about the energy industry around the world and how it's handling this, do you think? I'm incredibly proud of the energy sector, actually. I have to say, when I, uh, when I sent the first member communication out to say what we were doing within the Institute and how things were going to just change as we adjusted to this new sort of business as usual, um, and I, I got some lovely messages back in from the members in from Japan, from uh, the US, from uh, Italy, um, uh, from Malaysia, you know, coming in from all over the place. And they were very positive. They were very heartwarming. Um, starting to tell some quite interesting stories about their experiences and, and I guess there's one word that sums it up for me thus far in the stories I've heard is resilience. You know, th this sector appreciates how important resilience is because it supplies and enables economies to function, right? It keeps the lights yeah. on yeah. Uh, as, as, and, and it keeps the fuels flowing uh, and, and, and gives us the services that, that we desire for those of us that are lucky enough to have access to them. So. Um, I'm, I've been really, really impressed by uh, how that resilience has come to the fore, not just in keeping the critical operations going, which I'm sure you're having in conversations with, with some of the other folks that you're talking to, but also in just using the skills that they've got to go, right, so how do we make ourselves most useful 
in the current climate with thing with the experiences that people have people are having so, so are, you, are you seeing knowledge transfer of like in other countries from energy sector people to help with other industries or, or things like that at the moment what we're seeing is a lot of it is happening within in country so skill set so so energy companies and and people within them who've got some tremendous capabilities are thinking about how do how is what we do how can that be helpful whether that's ppe equipment that could be useful in certain situations not necessarily the the the, the full requirements for the nhs but there are a number of um auxiliary services and, and care services where it can be helpful uh, whether that is putting more money into mental health support for communities uh, or just for the general public actually to access um, whether that is doing more for vulnerable energy customers you know a lot of the supply companies have, have yeah. adjusted their funding and their schemes in order to make sure that, that that people do get access to the services that are so important to them in in this strange world that we're, we're currently living in so so i've seen a lot of that um one of the things i think the knowledge transfer between countries will come but i think it, it might be from different sources so for example mm. we've got thousands of young professionals in the energy institute all around the world we've got young professional networks in most of the countries where we've got big sort of clusters of members and um they, they're busy putting together an international webinar to share learning amongst the kids that are within first five years of their careers mm. working right across the energy system in all sorts of amazing disciplines and jobs and companies and they're about to initiate all of that and have a digital webinar and and, and organize that which is largely volunteer-led we'll support them to do it yeah because i was wondering whether that might be part of the role of the ei which yeah. is you know find people who worked in the energy sector in china and and, and, and Southeast Asia who've gone through the, hopefully the worst of it for them. And maybe they could give advice to us or, or America, wherever it's coming, you know, going on. Uh, is that something you'd like to see? Or is that, don't you think that's the role of the EI to try and get those different energy people talking and giving advice to others who, who may be facing what they've already faced? Yeah, I mean, it certainly is the role in terms of knowledge sharing and, and uh, supporting each other. That absolutely is a core role of the Institute. But I tell you where I think this will be most valuable. It's not necessarily about the, the critical operations in the sector now, uh, because each, you know, there are some similarities, obviously, around the world, but lots of organisations, energy systems function differently and have got different needs and, and sense of it. In Nigeria and in West Africa, where I've got an office, we're used to the lights going out half a dozen times in the space of one four hour meeting. It's not unusual. So their, their ability to adapt is different to what happens if that happens here, for example, in the UK. Um, but where I think there's real potential for um, what would the, sh the sharing that's yet to happen is how do we harness the value of this experience so that rather than returning to our old ways in thinking about the world of net zero, uh, rather than returning to our old ways of doing things and reverting to business as usual as we knew it before, we actually managed to use what we've learned in this experience as a step change for almost getting us off the blocks a bit more quickly towards net zero than we might otherwise have done. And I think that's where the real value in knowledge sharing. So in the policies that we develop around the globe, in the way that we incentivize better behavior towards reducing emissions, whether that's methane or carbon, whatever it is out, the, out of the energy system, those are where I think the real opportunities are. And then hopefully on the, the flip side of that, on the domestic side, where consumers have got to change their ways, 
this experience should be giving people a lot of learning about how that is really possible. Whether that's uh, at work and you thought certain functions just couldn't be run remotely, whether you didn't think you could run a trading desk, for example, remotely. Well, FCA approval came through for that pretty fast and it was and companies were up and running and moving. Whether it's like, whether do I really need to take that plane trip or that train journey? Can I use the facilities that we're talking now in order to do these things going forward? So you know, I, I, I would hope that we can use this to make sure that this is not just a blip, but that this incentivizes and, and, and shows us that we can actually do things differently and what, for the better. One, one of the things, I suppose, is we've all seen it, you know, the reports are there and you notice it yourself. I can hear the birds, you know, there's not been yeah. a plane over my house, you know, there are no cars on the road. It's, I'm old enough to remember the 70s. It's going back to the 70s on a Sunday when everything was closed. <laughs> yeah, no shops open, yeah. <laughs> You've read it in the history books. Yeah. But you know, it, you, you do see that we, in a terrible way, and it's the worst way we could have, but because it's been forced on us, we're doing things that we would have thought, one CEO said to me, I've done things that I thought would take years to do in two weeks. And yeah. culturally we've shifted from thinking, we have to go out, we have to have this, we have to do that, the consumerism thing. Mm. Are you hopeful that the lesson we have learned could, as you say, actually, they call it in Africa when they skip uh, a technology, but they don't put in landlines that go straight to, to mobile. Do you think we might actually just go, actually net zero is much more doable than we thought? I absolutely hope so. You know, I think, um, it, and it's really, we've tested this with, I work with 14, now 16, uh, CEOs in the energy industry on diversity and inclusion uh, right. because that's always been one of the challenges of you know our, our energy sector doesn't represent the society that we serve we're not recruiting from certain groups in, in society and therefore we're on the back foot because we haven't got the best diversity of thought coming in with the ideas and all of the chance all the things we need to make this transformation real um, and and we were talking last week about how actually the fact that these companies have already been working on inclusion and diversity puts them on the front foot in tackling this crisis um, because they are already you know the remote working is one tiny piece of it but it's how you think about people how you treat people the choices you make energy institute for example pledged to go net zero as a as an organization uh, in january we've been having the conversation about do we really need to get on the plane and go and do that thing there can we not do that via this method instead so on and so forth so i do think whether it's at, at work particularly there is a real opportunity to wait to change and, and sustain change in the way things get done and the way business gets done um, and and um, there's no doubt, I suspect, that, that the coming out of this, when we do come out of this, it's not going to be suddenly, right, everybody back uh, and, and, you know, in, within 24 hours, it's the normal we used to know. I, I can't imagine it's going to be anything like that. I think it'd be much slower uh, and gentler as, a, as an experience. So there's a ch every chance for business to hold on to that stuff. For the consumer, yes, I think it's, 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 it is a real opportunity. But I think we still need businesses and entrepreneurial approaches to working with customers and technologies that enable and facilitate in order to really lock the change in. Because it's one thing to have this taken away from you and have to do things differently, like you say. It's another thing when everything opens back up again. It's choice, to yeah. Be able to, to get your choice back mm. and still behave differently. So I think, you know, for the CCC to get its wish. Uh, about the role that consumers and us in society have to play 
to, to get to net zero, we, we, we still need that support and that enabling from, from industry and business to do that. My final question is, will the Energy Institute be different after this experience? Yeah, better. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We can always be better, but we're definitely going to come out of this um, better. We, we're going to use that learning, as I said, and we're going to use the opportunity to uh, change the way that we do things in terms of how we work. So it's going to help us make some of those choices about getting to net zero. I reckon it will mean that we can probably get there more quickly, uh, not least because everyone will be more digitally enabled than they were uh, when, we, when we were uh, thinking about it and talking about it in January. Uh, in terms of what we could do so yeah no I'm, I'm I'm very positive actually I think there's every chance that we can introduce some really good innovations that we can hold on to Louise Kingham thank you very much for your time thanks for listening to this future net zero podcast please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com future net zero better business better planet